Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I am Craig Kelberg. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. And I'm Craig Kelberg. something better by the time it got to me <laughs> see that's the, the thing you need to <laughs> stay in the moment and sometimes the moment sucks, sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that's the trick uh with recording podcasts that aren't scripted is you just have to be prepared for occasionally there's nothing good right it's yeah. just gonna be bad yeah sometimes sometimes the best comedy isn't funny that's not true um, sometimes you're bad at comedy. <laughs> that's true. That's and that's true. okay. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, I, uh, I attempted a, a, uh, I once only one time, uh, in Philadelphia, there was a, um, a bar that was doing like open night, open mic comedy nights for people who are not stand up comedians. Mm-hmm. The, the idea was like, oh, you're a, you're a musician or you're an actor or you're a, um, whatever. So someone sort of connected to the arts, but not a stand up. But you're curious about trying stand up. Come on in and give us a three minute set. And everybody in the audience was also non comedians who are coming in to try a three minute stand up yeah. set. So very supportive audience. It was great. Um, but I went in and did one of them, and it was awful. Man, it is hard to be funny when someone's like, cool, do something funny. Go be funny for three minutes. Yeah. Like three minutes is a long, it's a long time. time when, yeah. That is a long time. I, I have never made it to the part where I got up on stage. I once briefly thought this would be fun. And I tried just like coming up with the basis of a set because um, a friend of mine was doing stand up and got like super into it. And I was like. Oh, that'd be fun. I'll maybe like I, I went to a couple couple of the shows to see him do it, and I was like, "This that that looks fun. I'm gonna try and do it next time." And I was and like, "No, no, no, just yeah. holy crap!" Yeah. Well, it takes it takes um an incredible confidence to just step on the stage and be like, "I've written ten jokes. Yeah, eight of them are gonna make you laugh." Maybe. <laughs> eh. <laughs> Excuse me. And that's comedy. That's how comedy works. Woo! Nothing funnier than a fart. Well-timed fart. Yeah. Uh, speaking of comedy, before we get into what the uh, real show is this week, I think it's time for another segment I've taken to calling Clown Corner. Clown Corner. <laughs> it's everyone's favorite corner. Where I... least favorite corner. Talk about... Clowns, because no one can stop me. Um, I assume this is everyone's new favorite segment because we're recording a bunch of these episodes back to back to back, and no one has had a chance to email us to complain about me talking about clowns too much. Which means they must love them. Which means they must love it. Um, but uh, if you want me to stop talking about clowns, please email 5050artsproduction at gmail.com and send us either. Uh, a picture of something haunted, creepy, or otherwise fine Hang on. Uh, from 50, your 50 life. Arts. <laughs> um, and uh, we can we can put that up as being in competition with Freddy the doll and Mambo the clown uh, as the creepiest thing we've seen. Or if you listen to last week's episode, you can send us your dating horror stories and we'll comment on that instead of just giving more clown stories. But, uh, until someone stops me, welcome to clown corner. Somebody stop me. (laughs) It it was just there. You know, oh, what the world really needs is more mask references. (laughs) So Grok was known as the king of clowns. Grok. 
He was born Charles Adrian Wietosh in Switzerland in 1880. As a child, he literally joined a Romani caravan, which in the less PC days would be he ran off with the gypsies. He literally joined a Romani caravan where he started learning his performance technique. And by age 14, he was performing with a traveling circus. By 1903, he had created his Grok character, which he continued performing for the next 51 years. Damn, so at 19, he figured out what he was going to do the rest of his life. Until 1954. He was so popular that at the height of his career, he was the highest paid entertainer in the world. Damn. The highest paid entertainer, not the highest paid clown. In the 1920s, he bought his 50-room villa on the coast of Italy, where he eventually retired. I have pursued the wrong career. (laughs) Um, He ended up dying in uh, 1959, so he enjoyed five years of retirement in his villa. but he didn't retire until he was like 78 or something yeah, like so that. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. Anyway, this is Grok, the king of clowns. And again, I will post this picture on social media uh, in the next day or two as you're listening to this episode. You know, it, like it shouldn't be surprising since he was like, you know, effectively one of the first, but he just doesn't look that. Most of what looks weird is his actual face. Oh, yeah. Like, like it's, it's just he's got a real big, intense smile. Yep. He's pulling a wild expression. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he ended up like, there's a biography, there's a biopic about him. Um, and uh, he even, he, he actually appeared in a couple of movies yeah. as Grok, the also, clown. Also, Grok is a great, like, fantasy Orc name. barbarian yeah. name. Yeah. yeah. Um, when he started out, his clown partner's name was Brick. So they were Brick and Grok. That's good. Yeah. What happened to Brick? Uh, I don't know. Mm. I didn't um, care. That's fair. Uh, all right. So anyway, that's uh, that's this week's um, edition of Clown Corner. Please uh, let us know how you feel about that because... I don't know, because I'm curious. Um, But this is not, in fact, a clown podcast, although we may have a JP Patches podcast uh, coming up soon if we get enough requests for it. Uh, What this actually is. One request would be enough. One request would be enough. (laughs) It's going to be our mom. (laughs) She's sitting downstairs right now. She's going to listen to the episode and just knock on your door. Hey, uh, do it. Yeah. Um, no, this is this is a uh, literary comedy podcast where we take stories from the public domain and cold read them to you sight unseen, making jokes about the weird antiquated language and clownish sex jokes that appear in the stories. Um, sometimes we get three paragraphs in and realize that the main characters of the story are a couple of prepubescent boys and decide that the sex jokes have are to stop. Done. <laughs> Yeah. Whoops. Uh, but before we get into this week's story, which I have chosen for Craig to read, uh, I like to give a few little fun facts fun about facts. the author. Fun facts. Nice. Thank you. So this week, we've got a story by an author that we have actually covered in this podcast before, a guy named O. Henry. Oh, 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 Henry. Writing shorts. <laughs> Uh, We last read O. Henry back in episode seven, where I revealed some of his wilder history. Um, He accidentally or maybe on purpose embezzled money from a bank where he was working, escaped justice by fleeing to Honduras, returned to America to see his dying wife, was arrested and after coming out of jail and reuniting with his 11 year old daughter, started his writing career. Damn, that all that pre was precursor to him writing anything. Well, he had he had like written little bits and pieces, but he didn't like 
it didn't become his career. That is wild. Yeah, until all of that had happened. Uh, so for more detail on that stuff, go listen to episode seven of this podcast, which I will have linked in this episode's um, show note thing. Um, focusing this time on his writing career rather than his criminal career, William Sidney Porter was born on September 11th, 1862. The last one was born on September 11th. I know. 1862. 63, I think. 63, okay. Gonna look it up. Oh, shit. 1862, right? Chattanooga, Tennessee. 1862. Man. Wow. Yep. All right. Maybe they're the same person. It was a good day. Well, that would be weird because she was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as we discussed on, on the, the Chattanooga Choo Choo. Yeah. And O. Henry, at the time William Sidney Porter, was born way, way far away in Greensboro, North Carolina. Oh, hey. <laughs> not that far away. Actually. No, not that far away at all. In fact, the Chattanooga Choo Choo might go through yeah. Greensboro. Uh, yeah, anyway, he's better known today by his pen name, O. Henry, and he is best known for short stories like The Gift of the Magi and the story we read last time, The Ransom of Red Chief. Uh, his stories are known for their naturalist observations, witty narration, and surprise endings. <gasps> As a young man, he was quite the socialite and apparently had a way with the ladies, partially because he was quick-witted and clever with his storytelling. Right. He also liked singing and playing guitar and mandolin, although presumably not both at the same time. Yeah. That would be... That'd be impressive. Tricky. Um, he might be very talented. Who knows? Anyway, after the criminal events that I detailed two years ago, um, he did get into a writing career. He got that going in earnest. He moved to New York with his daughter in 1902. While there, he wrote 381 short stories. Damn. For a while, writing a story every single week for the New York World Sunday magazine. Readers loved him. Critics panned him. Awesome. <laughs> Honestly, you know, fuck critics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was it was during this time that he was writing uh, a short story a week for that magazine that he also did the bulk of his other writing right. that um, that has become better known. Uh, in 1907, he remarried. Uh, remember, his previous wife's death is what brought him back to America to get arrested. Uh, he remarried his childhood sweetheart, Aww. which is very sweet. But his drinking had started getting really out of control by this time, so mm -hmm. she left him two years later. Yeah. Uh, and did, a did year she... after that, 1910, he died because of health complications almost certainly stemming from his right. drinking. Uh, his hometown of Greensboro has an elementary school named after him, uh, but his birth name, so it's William Sidney Porter Elementary School, and a hotel called the O. Henry Hotel. I think there's also a bar in um, Asheville called O. Henry's. There is. I Pretty sure it's a gay bar. It's, it is. Uh, I, I guess it could be named after him. I doubt it, but it could be. Uh -huh. yeah. um, he was an alcoholic. <laughs> uh, the O. Henry Award is an annual writer's award given for uh, outstanding short stories. He is generally considered one of America's greatest writers and humorists. And today you'll be reading his short called The Trimmed Lamp from the 1907 book the Trimmed Lamp. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder where we got that title from. Let's start this fire. The Trimmed Lamp. I don't know exactly what, but it sounds vaguely like a euphemism. Like, it sounds... It sounds like it could be dirty. I don't know why. Well, anything that can be trimmed could be dirty. True. And something about lamps have wicks? Yeah. Uh. There's something there. The Trimmed Lamp by O. Henry. Oh, Henry. Oh, Henry. Of course, there are two sides to the question. Let us look at the other. That's a, that's a really good... I like that. 
I like that We're just line. jumping right into the middle of the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, there are two sides to the question. Let us look at the other. We often hear shop girls spoken of. No such person exists. There are girls who work in shops. They make their living that way, but why turn their occupation into an adjective? Let us be fair. We do not refer to the girls who live on Fifth Avenue as marriage girls. Okay, but like, maybe the shop girls identify by what they do at the shop. True. It's possible. It's possible. And from now on, I'm going to be ta I'm going to be referring to um, the girls who live on Fifth Avenue as, as marriage, marriage girls. girls. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Lou and Nancy were chums. They came to the big city to find work because there was not enough to eat at their homes to go around. Nancy was 19, Lou was 20. Both were pretty, active, country girls who had no ambition to go on the stage. They didn't want to be actors. Okay, that's fine. The little cherub... Mm, the little cherub that sits up aloft guided them to a cheap and respectable boarding house. Both found positions and became wage earners. They remained chums. It is at the end of six months that I would beg you to step forward and be introduced to them. Meddlesome reader. My lady friends, Miss Fancy and Miss Lou. That's a little rude. <laughs> Assuming we're meddlesome. I'm going to add meddlesome listener. My lady friends, Miss Nancy and Miss Lou. While you are shaking hands, please take notice cautiously of their attire. Yes, cautiously, for they are as quick to resent a stare as a lady in a box at the horse show is. All right, take a look, but not too long. My eyes are up here. Lou is a piece of work ironer in a hand laundry. She is clothed in a badly fitting purple dress, and her hat plume is four inches too long. But her ermine muff and scarf cost $25, and its fellow beasts will be ticketed in the windows at $7.98 before the season is over. Her cheeks are pink, and her light blue eyes bright. Contentment radiates from her. Nancy, you would call a shop girl because you have the habit. I mean, I don't, but but I will now because yeah. you told me to. There is no type, but a perverse generation is always seeking a type. So this is what the type should be. She has the high ratted pompadour and the exaggerated straight front. Her skirt is shoddy, but has the correct flair. No furs protect her against the bitter spring air, but she wears her short, broadcloth jacket as jauntily as though it were Persian lamb. On her face and in her eyes, remorseless typeseeker, is the typical shop girl expression. It is a look of silent but contemptuous revolt against cheated womanhood, of sad prophecy of the vengeance to come. When she laughs, her loudest, the look is still there. The same look can be seen in the eyes of Russian peasants, and those of us left will see it someday on Gabriel's face when he comes to blow us upon. Blow us up. Dirty Gabriel. He's gonna blow us up? Angry Gabriel. Yeah. It is a look that should wither and abash man, but he has been known to smirk at it and offer fl flowers with a string tied to them. Now lift your hat and come away, while you receive Lou's cheery, see you again, and the sardonic sweet smile of Nancy that seems somehow to miss you and go fluttering like a white moth up over the housetops to the stars. The two waited on the corner for Dan. Dan was Lou's steady company. Faithful? Well, he was on hand when Mary would have had, uh, hire, had to hire a dozen subpoena servers to find her lamb. Who the fuck is Mary? What? What is happening? <laughs> Ain't she cold, Nance? Said Lou. Say, what a ch say, say, what a chump you are for working in that old store for eight dollars a week. I made eighteen fifty last week. Of course, ironing ain't as swell work as selling lace behind a counter, but it pays. None of us ironers make less than ten dollars, and I don't know that it's any less respectful work either. 
And there have been weeks when 1850 would have been a good week for me. Yeah. <laughs> you can have it, said Nancy with uplifted, uplifted nose. I'll take my eight a week and and hall bedroom. Take my eight a week and hall bed hall bedroom. Yeah, I guess so she makes uh, no hall bedroom like she has a a bedroom in the hall. Oh, got I'll it. I'll take it. my eight a week and hall bedroom. Got it. That not a not a phrase, just straight up what it is. Yeah. Got it. I'll take my eight a week and hall bedroom. I like to be among nice things and swell people. And look what a chance I've got. Why, one of our glove girls married a Pittsburgh steel maker or blacksmith or something. The other day, worth a million dollars. I'll catch a swell myself sometime. I ain't bragging on my looks or anything. But I'll take my chances where there's big prizes offered. What show would a girl have in a laundry? <laughs> yeah, you're making more money than me, but I'm get me a man. Damn straight. Why, that's where I met Dan, said Lou, triumphantly. He came in for for his Sunday shirt and collars and saw me at the first board, ironing. We all tr- I'm, I'm like really struggling with the word ironing. Like, I don't know why, it's just a weird word to pronounce sometimes. Ironing? Yeah. Uh, because you want it to be irony? I don't think so. I don't know. Flattening? Flattening. <laughs> Making look good. I'm pertifying. We all try to get to work at the first board. Ella McGinnis. Ella McGinnis was sick that day. Oh, I'm going to go with McGinnis. McGinnis? That, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Ella McGinnis was sick that day. And I had her place. He said he noticed my arms first. How round and white they was. I had my sleeves rolled up. Some nice fellas come into laundries. You can tell them by their bringing their clothes in suitcases and turning the turning in the door sharp and sudden. Turning in the door sharp and sudden, yeah. like opening the door quick. Mm. I, I like I understood what she was saying, just no. like. Yeah, all right. <laughs> How can you wear a waist like that, Lou? Said Nancy, gazing gazing down at the offending article with sweet scorn in her heavy lidded eyes. It shows fierce taste. This waist? cried Lou with wide-eyed indignation. Why, I paid $16 for this waist. It's worth 25 A woman left it to be laundered and never called for it. <laughs> I got a couple of uh, uh, jackets and things at the hotel that way. When I was working at a bellman, as a bellman, like people just left shit behind. Yeah. And it was like, well, if it's been in lost and found for however long. I'm guessing you didn't pay half the cost more than half the cost of the item but didn't pay anything for it yeah. <laughs> the boss sold it to me it's got yards and yards of hand embroidery on it better talk about that ugly plain thing you've got on this ugly plain thing said Nancy calmly was copied from one that Mrs. Van Alstein Fisher was wearing the girls say her bill in the store last year was twelve thousand dollars I made mine myself. It cost me a dollar fifty. Ten feet away, you couldn't tell it from hers. These two candy ladies. <laughs> oh, well, said Lou good-naturedly. If you want to starve and put on airs, go ahead. But I'll take my job and good wages, and after hours, give me something as fancy and attractive to wear as I am able to buy. But just then, Dan came, a serious young man with ready-made necktie who had escaped the city's brand of frivolity, an electrician earning $30 per week who looked upon Lou with the sad eyes of Romeo and thought her embroidered waist a web in which any fly should delight to be caught. Sad eyes of Romeo, that doesn't bode well. Yeah, they're gonna die. <laughs> My friend, Mr. Owens, shake hands with Miss Denforth, said Lou. I'm mighty glad to know know you, Miss Danforth, said Dan, with outstretched hands. I've heard Lou speak of you so often. Thanks, said Nancy, touching his fingers with the tips of her cool ones. I've heard her mention you a few times. That is such a weird, like, 
they just did the 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 et, the ET touch thing, fingers right. <laughs> or the um except the, with the, all their fingers what the, or the 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 big painting um god ceiling touching of, adam ceiling full of naked guys S- touching fingers yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> yes that one you know that famous ceiling full of naked dudes yeah classic lou giggled <laughs> Did you get that handshake from Mrs. Van Alstein Fisher, Nance? She oh, asked. Good. Okay. They thought it was weird, too. Yeah. <laughs> if I did, you can feel safe in copying it, said Nancy. Oh, I couldn't use it at all. It's too stylish for me. It's intended to set off diamond rings, that high shake is. Wait till I get a few, and then I'll try it. Learn it first, said Nancy wisely, and you'll be more likely to get the rings. <laughs> now to settle this argument, Thank said Dan, you. with his ready, cheerful smile, let me make a proposition. As I can't take both of you up to Tiffany's and do the right thing, what do you say to the little vaudeville? I've got the tickets. How about looking at stage diamonds since we can't shake hands with the real sparklers? Did he just say, since I can't buy you both an engagement ring, <laughs> let me pretend to buy both of you an engagement ring? Yes. Yes, he did. One of them being someone he met like 30 seconds ago. Yeah. The faithful squire took his place close to the curb. Lou next, a little peacocky in her bright and pretty clothes. Nancy on the inside, slender and soberly clothed as the sparrow, but with the true Van Alstein Fisher walk. Thus, they set out for their evening's moderate diversion. We're off to see the wizard. The moderate wizard of Oz. (laughs) I do not suppose that many look upon a great department store as an educational institution, but the one in which Nancy worked was something like that to her. She was surrounded by beautiful things that breathed of taste and refinement. If you live in an atmosphere of luxury, luxury is yours whether your money pays for it or another's. The people she served were mostly women whose dress, manners, and position in the social world were quoted as criterions. From them, Nancy began to take toll, the best of each according to her view. Watch people. Watch people act fancy. Yeah. Watch watch rich people mimic them. From one, she would copy and practice a gesture. From another, an eloquent lifting of an eyebrow. From others, a manner of walking, of carrying a purse, of smiling, of greeting a friend, of addressing inferiors in station. From her best best beloved model, Mrs. Van Alstein Fisher, she made requisition for that excellent thing, a soft, low voice as clear as silver and as perfect in articulation as the notes of a thrush. I wish I had gotten that description before I read her. Eh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Too late now. I like that this this is a woman who is like intentionally looking for ways to put on airs. Well, that's how you get rich. She's she's working Fake a, it till you make it. Yeah, she's working a job where she doesn't make as much money as she could because she's hoping to catch a rich man. Suffused in the aura of this high social refinement and good breeding, it was impossible for her to escape a deeper effect of it. As good habits are said to be better than good principles, so perhaps good manners are better than good habits. Continuing the theme of just pretend. Just pretend. The teachings of your parents may not keep alive your New England conscience, but if you sit on a straight-back chair and repeat the words prisms and pilgrims 40 times, the devil will flee from you. And when Nancy spoke in the Van Alstein Fisher tones, she felt the thrill of noblesse oblige to her very bones. Noblesse oblige. The inferred responsibility of privileged people to act with generosity and nobility toward those less privileged. So noblesse oblige is the obligation of the noble. And when Nancy spoke in the Van Elstein Fisher tones, she felt the thrill of noblesse oblige. Noblesse Noblesse oblige. Fuck. When Nancy spoke in the Van Elstein Fisher tones, she felt the thrill of noblesse oblige in her very bones. There was another source of learning in the great departmental school. 
Whenever you see three or four shop girls gather in a bunch and jingle their wire bracelets as an accompaniment to apparently frivolous conversation, do not think that they are there for the purpose of criticizing the way Ethel does her back hair. Does Ethel have so much back hair that she has to braid it? Nothing wrong with that. I didn't realize that in the early 1900s, people were styling their back hair. Like you go to the barber and, and take off your shirt to get it all done up. Well, yeah, of course. Put it in cu curlers. <laughs> Instead of the, the little heating, like, the, 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 the dryer you're basically that in a tanning bed. Top. Yeah, you're basically in a tanning bed. Perfect. That sets your curls. Yeah. On fire. <laughs> the meeting may lack the dignity of the deliberative bodies of man, but it has all the importance of the occasion on which Eve and her first daughter first put their heads together to make Adam understand his proper place in the household. It is Woman's Conference for Common Defense and Exchange of Strategical Theories of Attack and Repulse Upon and Against the World. Which is a stage, and man, it's audience who persists in throwing bouquets thereupon. Th that was all like the title, the title of the meeting. Jesus. All right, I need to take another crack at that because that was. It is. It is. W C C D E S T A R W S M A P T B T. For short. For short. Yeah. I'm gonna try that again. Yep. It is. Woman's Conference for Common Defense and Exchange of Strategical Theories of Attack and Repulse Upon and Against the World, which is a stage and man, its audience who persists in throwing bouquets thereupon. <sighs> I should have taken a deeper breath. Wukda est was mapped. Perfect. All right. So they're talking about real shit when they yeah. gather in the shops and gossip. Uh... Woman, the most helpless of the young of any animal, with the fawn's grace but without its fleetness, with the bird's beauty but without its power of flight, with the honeybee's burden of sweetness but without its... Oh, let's drop that simile. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Some of us may have been stung. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. The honeybee's burden of sweetness, but without... Oh, nope, never mind. Some of us have been stung. During this council of war, they pass weapons one to another and exchange stratagems that each has devised and formulated out of the tactics of life. I say to him, says Sadie, ain't you the fresh thing? Who do you suppose I am to be addressing with such a remark to me? And what do you think he says back to me? The heads, brown, black, flaxen, red, and yellow, bob together. The answer is given, and the parry to thrust is decided upon, to be used by each thereafter in passages at arms with the common enemy. Man. If Heather were here, mm -hmm. I would ask if this sort of war council is actually a thing that goes on. But since we are uh, an isolated pair of men, I'll just have to assume that they really do plan everything they're going to say beforehand. I mean, I plan everything I say I'm going to say beforehand. Yes, but do you discuss it with other people? No, but I don't like talking to other people. Right, because you have to plan out what you're going to say beforehand. Right. I would yeah. have I would have to like plan what I was going to discuss with those people so that I could then plan what I was going to discuss with another person. Right, but who would you go to to plan what you were going to say with your planning group? Um God. That's not true. Um, my cat. Is your cat helpful? No. Oh. But she's not very judgmental either. That's nice. We like that. <laughs> and her responses could all be in hisses and interpretive dance. Yeah, and I can interpret them however I want. And <laughs> she can't really disagree with me. All right. Thus, Nancy learned the art of defense. And to women, successful defense means victory. The correct... <laughs> The curriculum of a department store is a wide one. Are you going to have to edit that? Like, I think that's copywritten music. Uh, it's less than seven seconds. Okay. The curriculum of a department store is a wide one. Also, occasionally I intentionally throw things in that I know are copywritten because, like, if someone like Nintendo 
sues this podcast. That's a win. Holy crap, that's a win. Yeah. The curriculum of a department store is a wide one. Perhaps no other college could have fitted her as well for her life's ambition. The drawing of a matrimonial prize. Her station in the store was a favored one. The music room was near enough for her to hear and become familiar with the works of the best composers, at least to acquire the familiarity that passed for appreciation in the social world in which she was vaguely trying to set a tentative and aspiring foot. That is a lot of, like... Caveats? Caveats. It's a lot of caveats. She absorbed the educating influence of artwares, of costly and dainty fabrics, of adornments that are almost culture to women. The other girls soon became aware of Nancy's ambition. Here comes your millionaire, Nancy, they would call to her whenever any man who looked the role approached her counter. It got to be a habit of men who were hanging about while their women folk were shopping to stroll over to the handkerchief counter and dawdle over the cambric squares. Nancy's imitation highbred air and genuine dainty beauty was what attracted. Many men thus came to display their graces before her. Some of them may have been millionaires, others were certainly no more than their sedulous? Sedulous of a person or action showing dedication and diligence. I don't understand that sentence there. Many men thus came to display. Some of them may have been millionaires, others were certainly no more than their sedulous apes. Oh, so they weren't millionaires, they were hardworking monkeys. Got it. Okay. <laughs> Nancy learned to discriminate. There was a window at the end of the handkerchief counter, and she could see the rows of vehicles waiting for the shoppers in the streets below. She looked and perceived that automobiles differ as well as do their owners. Oh, good job. There are different types of cars. I think it's more than that. <laughs> Once a fascinating gentleman bought four dozen handkerchiefs and wooed her across the counter with a King Cofetua air. Co Cofetua air. Yeah. A song. Some kind of king. <laughs> uh, when he had gone, one of the girls said, What's wrong, Nance, that you didn't warm up to that fellow? He looked the swell article all right to me. Him? said Nancy with her coolest, sweetest, most impersonal Van Elstein Fisher smile, not for mine. I saw him drive up outside, a 12-horsepower machine and an Irish chauffeur. Chauffeur? <laughs> chauffeur. Chauffeur. A 12-horsepower machine and an Irish chauffeur. And you saw what kind of handkerchiefs he bought? Silk! And he's got dactylis on him. Lots of good words in this one. Yeah. D-A-C-T-Y-L-I-S. That's the one. Uh, it's a kind of grass. Oh, he's dirty. He, like, works. Oh. And he's got dactylis on him. Give me the real thing or nothing, if you please. Two of the most refined women in the store, a forelady and a cashier, had a few swell gentlemen friends with whom they now and then dined. Once they included Nancy in, their in an invitation, the dinner took place in a spectacular cafe whose tables are engaged for New Year's Eve a year in advance. There were two gentlemen friends, one without any hair on his head, high living ungrew it, and we can prove it. The other, a young man whose worth and sophistication he impressed upon you in two convincing ways. He swore that all the wine was corked, and he wore diamond cuff buttons. <laughs> that's um, <laughs> that's that's a that's a great way to uh, pretend like you know something about wine if just, you actually don't. Just send it back. Just send it back. Yeah. Like oh, no, Not no, it's it's no, it's it's corked. It, yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. This young man perceived irresistible excellencies in Nancy. His taste ran to shop girls. And here was one that added the voice and manners of his high social world to the franker charms of her own caste. So, on the following day, he appeared in the store and made her a serious proposal of marriage over a box of hem-stitched 
Grass bleached Irish linens. Nancy declined. A brown pompadour ten feet away had been using her eyes and ears. When the rejected suitor had gone, she heaped carboys of upbraidings and horror upon Nancy's head. <laughs> a brown pompadour ten feet away. What a terrible little fool you are. That fellow's a millionaire. He's a nephew of an of an old Van Skittles himself. Van Skittles. <laughs> and Well, that's why he's a millionaire. He's the Skittles family. Right. Oh, you don't know what you're going to be missing out on in a few years. And he was talking on the level, too. Have you gone crazy, Nance? Have I? Said Nance. I didn't take him. I, I didn't take him, did I? He isn't a millionaire so hard that you could notice it anyway. His family only allows him $20,000 a year to spend. The bald-headed fellow was guying him about it the other night at supper. The brown pompadour came nearer and narrowed her eyes. Say, what do you want? She inquired, in a voice hoarse for lack of chewing gum. Ain't that enough for you? Do you want to be a Mormon and marry Rockefeller and Gladstone... Do Dowie and the King of Spain and the whole bunch ain't twenty thousand a year good enough for you? <laughs> Man, that's what I make now. Back then, <laughs> wow, you're making twenty thousand a year on a good year. <laughs> uh, not the last few years. Nancy flushed a little under the level gaze of the black, shallow eyes. It wasn't altogether the money, Carrie. She explained. His friend caught him in a rank lie the other night at dinner. It was about some girl he said he hadn't been to the theater with. Well, I can't stand a liar. Put everything together, I don't like him, and that settles it. When I sell out, it's not going to be on any bargain day. <laughs> Plans to sell out, I love it. That's my plan too. Not romantically, but you know. No, just, you know, whenever you can. Yeah. I've got to have something that sits up in a chair like a man, anyhow. Yes, I'm looking out for a catch. But it's got to be able to do something more than make a noise like a toy bank. <laughs> the physiopathic ward of yours, said the brown pompadour, walking away. These high ideas, if not ideals, Nancy continued to cultivate on $8 per week. She bivo- Ah... Bivouac? Bivouac. 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 A temporary camp without tents or cover, usually cool. especially by soldiers or mountaineers. Cool. Or, as a verb, to stay in a temporary camp cool. without comfort. cover. Perfect. She bivouacked on the trail of the great unknown catch, eating her dry bread and tightening her belt day by day. On her face was the faint soldierly, sweet, grim smile of the preordained man-hunter. The store was her forest, and many times she raised her rifle at game that seemed broad-antlered and big. But always some deep, unerring instinct, perhaps of the huntress, perhaps of the woman, made her hold her fire and take up the trail again. This is starting to feel like it's going to be a... Um a, a moral somewhere along the lines of like if you're living for yourself and doing what makes you happy then like good things will come to you if you're living for someone else to make you happy you're always gonna miss right i like that there was like a brief scene where lou and nancy met dan and then they just most of the story has been by the way here's who nancy is yeah <laughs> Lou flourished in the laundry. Out of her $18.50 per week, she paid $6 for her room and board. The rest went mainly for clothes. Her opportunities for bettering her taste and manners were few compared with Nancy's. In the steaming laundry, there was nothing but work. Work and her thoughts of the evening pleasures to come. Many costly and showy fabrics passed under her iron, and it may be that her growing fondness for dress was thus transmitted to her through the conducting metal. <laughs> <laughs> she, it's like when, when we joked about laying on our science book and absorbing the, yeah. the knowledge through uh, 
Osmosis. Osmosis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When the day's work was over, Dan awaited her outside, her faithful shadow in whatever light she stood. Sometimes he cast an honest and troubled glance at Lou's clothes that increased in conspicuity in inconspicuity rather than in style. But this was no disloyalty. He deprecated the attention they called to her in the streets. <laughs> All right. So her clothes are getting louder, but not fancier. Right. <laughs> Uh, and Lou was no less faithful in her chum. There was a law that Nancy should go with them on whatsoever outings they might take. Dan bore the extra burden heartily and in good cheer. It might be said that Lou furnished the color, Nancy the tone, and Dan the weight of the dis distraction-seeking trio. <laughs> <laughs> the escort, in his neat but obviously ready-made suit, his ready-made tie and unfailing, genial, ready-made wit never startled or clashed. He was of that good kind that you are likely to forget while they are present, but remember distinctly after they are gone. No, That's cute. To Nancy's... You know, you don't know what you have until it's gone. Don't it always seem to go? Uh, hey, I see what you did. Yeah. Tenacious. Hey, I heard they put up a parking lot <laughs> and uh, paved something. Uh, there aren't trees anymore. Yeah. They're in a, like, library or... You can pay a dollar to... Pay a buck fifty and yeah. go See them? check them out. To Nancy's superior taste, the flavor of these ready-made pleasures was sometimes a little bitter. But she was young, and youth is a gourmand. When it cannot be a gourmet. <laughs> Dan, uh, Dan is always wanting me to marry him right away, Lou told her once. But why should I? I'm independent. I can do as I please with the money I earn. And he never would agree for me to keep on working afterward. And say, Nance, what do you want to stick to that old store for? And half starve and half dress yourself. I could get you a place in the laundry right now if you'd come. It seems to me that you could afford to be a little less stuck up if you could make a good deal more money. <laughs> Damn. I don't think... We all need a friend who will tell us that. Right. I don't think I'm stuck up, Lou, said Nancy. But I'd rather live on half rations and stay where I am. I suppose I've got the habit. It's the chance that I want. I don't expect to be always behind a counter. I'm learning something new every day. I'm right up against refined and rich people all the time, even if I do only wait on them. And I'm not missing any pointers that I see passing around. Caught your millionaire yet? Asked Lou with her teasing laugh. I haven't selected one yet, answered Nancy. <laughs> I've been looking them over. <laughs> Goodness, the idea of picking over them. Don't you ever let one... One get by you, Nance. Goodness, the idea of picking over him. Don't you ever let one get by you, Nance, even if he's a few dollars shy. But of course, you're joking. Millionaires don't think about working girls like us. It might be better for them if they did, said Nancy with cool wisdom. Some of us could teach them how to take care of their money. Ooh. If one was to speak to me, laughed Lou, I know I'd have a duck fit. A duck fit? <laughs> the hell's a duck fit? Duck fit. Woo. Every day they're out there making duck shit. Woo. <laughs> it's a typo. I meant to say fuck it. Woo. Oh, a duck fit. A temper tantrum. Got it. Duck fit, like a shit fit. If one was to speak to me, <laughs> laughed Lou, I know I would have a duck fit. That's because you don't know any. The only difference between swells and other people is you have to watch them closer. Don't you think that red silk lining is just a little bit too bright for that coat, Lou? <laughs> <laughs> Lou looked at the plain, dull, olive jacket of her friend. Well, no, I don't. 
but it may seem so beside that faded-looking thing you've got on. Ooh. This jacket, said Nancy complacently, has exactly the cut and fit of one that Mrs. Van Elstein Fisher was wearing the other day. The material cost me $3.98. I suppose hers cost more than, or costs about $100 more. Oh, well, said Lou lightly. It don't strike me as millionaire bait. Shouldn't wonder if I catch one before you do anyway. <laughs> and she's saying that right in front of this guy who's trying to marry her. Right. Truly, it would have taken a philosopher to decide upon the values of the theories held by the two friends. Lou, lacking that certain pride and fastidiousness that keeps stores and desks filled with girls working for the barest living, thumped away gaily with her iron in the noisy and stifling laundry. Her wages supported her even beyond the point of comfort, so that her dress profited until sometimes she cast a sidelong glance of impatience at the neat but inelegant apparel of Dan. Dan the constant, the immutable, the undeviating. As for Nancy, her case was one of tens of thousands. Silk and jewels and laces and ornaments and the perfume and music of the fine world of good breeding and taste. These were made for woman. They were her equitable portion. Let her keep near them if they are a part of life to her, and if she will. She is no traitor to herself, as Esau, Esau was. Esau. Esau. Yep, that's the one. I don't think I've seen it written in a while. <laughs> she was no traitor to herself, as Esau was. For she keeps her birthright, and the pottage she earns is often very scant. In this atmosphere, Nancy belonged and she throve in it and ate her frugal meals and schemed over her cheap dresses with a determined and contented mind. She already knew woman, and she was studying man, the animal, both as to his habits and eligibility. Someday she would bring down the game that she wanted, but she promised herself it would be what seemed to, to her the biggest and the best, and nothing smaller. Thus, she kept her lamp trimmed, and burning to receive the the bridegroom when he should come. Hey, that was that was that thing. There's the title. Yeah. What's that called when you say the title in the story? Isn't isn't there like Is a, there a word for that? I think so. Anyhow. But another lesson she learned, perhaps unconsciously, her standard of values began to shift and change. Sometimes the dollar mark grew blurred in her mind's eye and shaped itself into letters that spelled such words as truth and honor and now and then just kindness. Let us make a likeness of one who hunts the moose or elk in some mighty wood. He sees a little dell, mossy and embowered, there, er, where a rill trickles, babbling to him of rest and comfort. At these times, the spear of Nimrod himself grows blunt. So, Nancy wondered sometimes if Persian lamb was always quoted at its market value by the hearts that it covered. One Thursday evening, Nancy left the store and turned across 6th Avenue westward to the laundry. She was expected to go with Lou and Dan to a musical comedy. Dan was just coming out of the laundry when she arrived. There was a queer, strained look on his face. I thought I would drop drop around to see if they had heard from her, he said. Heard from who? asked Nancy. Isn't Lou there? I thought you knew, said Dan. She hasn't been here or at the house where she lived since Monday. She moved all her things from there. She told one of the girls in the laundry she might be going to Europe. Dun -dun. Hasn't anybody seen her anywhere? asked Nancy. Dan looked at her with his jaws set grimly and a steely gleam in his eyes, in his steady gray eyes. They told me in the laundry, he said harshly, that they saw her pass yesterday in an automobile with one of the millionaires, I suppose, that you and Lou were forever busying your brains about. Aw, Dan! Dun-dun! Poor Dan. 
For the first time, Nancy quailed before a man. She laid her hand that trembled slightly on Dan's sleeve. You've no right to say such a thing to me, Dan, as if I had anything to do with it. I didn't mean it that way, said Dan, softening. He fumbled in his vest pocket. I've got the tickets for the show tonight, he said with a gallant show of lightness. If you... Nancy admired pluck whenever she saw it. I'll go with you, Dan, she said. Three months went by before Nancy saw Lou again. Oh, all right. That's a big time jump. Yep. They're both going to be married. Probably. At twilight, one evening, the shop girl was hurrying home along the border of a little quiet park. She heard her name called and wheeled about in time to catch Lou rushing into her arms. After the first embrace, they drew their heads back as serpents do, ready to attack or to charm. (laughs) With a thousand questions trembling on their swift tongues. And then Nancy noticed that prosperity had descended upon Lou, manifesting itself in costly furs, flashing gems, and creations of the tailor's art. You little fool, cried Lou loudly and affectionately. I see you are still working in that store, and as shabby as ever. And how about that big catch you were going to make? Nothing doing yet, I suppose. Well, that's not very nice. No, but these two have a friendship that seems kind of not so nice to me. And then Lou looked and saw that something better than prosperity had descended upon Nancy. Something that shone brighter than gems in her eyes and redder than a rose in her cheeks and that danced like electricity anxious to be loosed from the tip of her tongue yes i'm still in the store said nancy but i'm going to leave it next week i've made my catch the biggest catch in the world you won't mind now will you i'm going to be married to dan to dan he's my dan now why lou around the corner of the park strolled one of those new crop smooth-faced young policemen that are making the force more endurable. (laughs) 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 Alright, I'm gonna read that one again. You know, you know, with the smooth faces and the chiseled jawline and Mm. they kind of look like they're gonna knock on the door of a bachelorette party. Right. Start talking really weird about a noise complaint. And then the music starts. Makes you forget about bow, all the problematic stuff bow, the rest of them do. Bow, all right. Bow, bow, bow. Around the corner of the park strolled one of those new crop, smooth faced young policemen that are making the force more endurable, at least to the eye. He saw a. W- <laughs> Good lord. All right. He saw a woman with an expensive fur coat and diamond-ringed hands crouching down against the iron fence of the park, sobbing turbulently, while a slender, plainly-dressed working girl leaned close trying to console her. But the Gibsonian cop, being of the new order, passed on pretending not to notice, for he was wise enough to know that these matters are beyond help so far as the power he represents is concerned. Though he wrapped the pavement with his nightstick till the sound goes up to the furthermost stars. The end. So Lou got the rich guy, which made it seem like she won. But Nancy got the guy that was actually like nice, nice and we liked. So she actually won. I I, got to say when the cop showed up, there was like. This is definitely colored by, like, modern times, but a part of me expected him to kill one of them. <laughs> and that would be the ending. Right. right. There, there was a little part of me thinking, oh, oh, he's going to see the rich lady crying and the poor lady standing over her. And he's going to go, like, knock Nancy on the back of the head and arrest her. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, uh... Wheel of morality, turn, turn, turn. What's the moral of the story? Don't settle. Uh, Money is everything. Wear flashy clothes. 
It's not the journey, but the destination. It's not the journey, but the clothes that you wear on it. (laughs) Because at the end of your life, you can take it with you. (laughs) There it is. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. I like his writing style. He's very conversational in his writing style. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cool. So that was Oh Henry. Oh Henry. Oh Henry. Silly uh, old bear. <laughs> uh, I hope you enjoyed that one, listener. What'd you think? What did you think the moral of that story was, or should have been, or shouldn't have been? Uh, let us know by emailing us at fifty fifty artsproduction at gmail dot com or messaging us at any of our social media platforms. Uh, looking for Campfire Classics podcast. You can also still send us um, pictures and stories about your creepy, weird, and haunted objects. Um, When you send us those messages, please include this week's secret passcode, which is ShopGirl. Also, your embarrassing uh, romantic stories. You know those two. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's We've also got those running from last week. But that actually, that also applies this week. Uh, embarrassing romantic stories. I don't have any, uh, that directly relate to this because I have never either specifically been looking for a millionaire, nor have I ever had a young lady try to date me because I could be her sugar daddy. (laughs) No, you haven't, (laughs) you haven't had someone go, I bet you're a millionaire. You want to? No, 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 no one assumes that unemployed actors are going to be able to take care of them financially. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, that's all I got for this week. Any words before we say farewell? Uh, they're not shop girls. They're girls who work in shops. And on that note, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. <laughs>